I'm curious your view on that. Are the builders coming back to Bitcoin because of the spam or is that, is that a disingenuous narrative? Totally disingenuous. What is coming back is a set of gambler and uh, social media um, manipulators uh, and pump and dump group creators that use uh, the typical uh, late stage Silicon Valley builder narrative, which is basically uh, a random buzzword, uh, total hype. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Stefan Levera podcast, a show brought to you by swan.com. Today, we're doing something a little different. I am including some mini interviews that I took while I was at Bitcoin Oasis. So Bitcoin Oasis is a Bitcoin only conference in Dubai. I was there uh, as MC and also uh, while I was there, I thought I'd get the opportunity to capture some mini interviews with a bunch of people who you may know, or many of them are past guests on the show. So uh, they are Alejandro De La Torre, Luke Dasher, Prince Philip of Serbia, Pete Rizzo, and Giacomo Zucco. So we talk about a few different things, differing approaches on spam, aka ordinals, inscriptions, BRC20, stamps. We talk about new mining pools, the demand mining pool and ocean mining pool. And we talk about nation-state adoption and what does that look like, as well as technical directions in Bitcoin, biddling or so-called biddling, as well as trying to grapple honestly with the trade-offs of scaling Bitcoin. So now on to my uh, Clipped Together mini interviews. Hi guys, we are here at Bitcoin Oasis in Dubai. I'm here with Alejandro De La Torre. He is the CEO of Demand Pool, a new Bitcoin mining pool. Uh, he's also done a lot of things previously in Bitcoin long history with Bitcoin mining. Uh, but l let's first hear a little bit from you uh, about uh, what it's been like setting up your own new mining pool with Demand. Um, it's always a very big challenge to start a new mining pool. You need a lots of um, lots of infrastructure, specifically because we're building a Stratum V2 pool from the ground up, and it's all new software. So it's been um, a lot of hard work, but we're getting there, and um, we're looking forward to the future. Yeah, and you guys are doing Stratum V2, so that's also another really interesting point of differentiation. So can you tell us a little bit about why that's a differentiator? Sure. So it, it, it increases the centralization of Bitcoin mining by providing miners with the ability to create their own block templates and to add their own transactions in the blocks. So what that means is that in the past, mining pool operators were the one with that power. Now the miners themselves have that power. It, it helps decentralization. I'm giving the power to the miners, essentially. That will also allow for you as a miner to include any transaction you want. If it could be A or B, whatever it is that you think is a good idea to add to the block, you can do it. You can do out-of-bound transactions if you're a large operator. You can also deny some transactions if you like. Yeah, so that's, that'll be interesting. And so when you're setting up a new pool, I think one other interesting aspect is that you do need to make sure you get enough of a, you know, enough hash rate to be a viable pool. So I guess that's, that's going to be an interesting thing for you about making sure that you build up enough to be a viable pool. So can you just talk a little bit about that process? Sure. So that's, uh, that's old school business. And I've been, in the past, I've ran two large mining operations, uh, sorry, mining pool operations. And it's a traditional business you got to find you got to find the miners you got to onboard them the 
the good thing is, is that Trident V2 um, up improves efficiency, improves encryption, security, doesn't allow for attacks. Uh, it's better with decentralization, as I said earlier. So already I have a very strong cell that's going to help me. But it's a traditional business. you got to get boots on the ground and find miners and, and onboard them. Yeah. Uh, in terms of um, experiences here at Bitcoin Oasis, have you had any good conversations here, any miners or anything uh, to share there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is an um, important place right now for Bitcoin mining. Um, I think the Bitcoin mining um, industry is evolving to include new regions. One of those regions is the Middle East, and UAE is a hub for everything Middle East. Um, there's also new places coming up in Africa. Latin America is a little bit more established. Um, but yeah, the Middle East and this this particular conference is great because I'll be able to meet all, all those guys in this region. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned on the panel earlier, that there's different models coming and people are looking for arbitrage and profit opportunities in different ways. Sometimes that is, you know, the, the heating um, aspect or using uh, electricity that would otherwise not be used. So can you just elaborate a little bit on some of these new models or what you're seeing there for electricity arbitrage? Sure. So one of the most important things about uh, Bitcoin mining as a Bitcoin miner, you need to find different revenue streams. And one of these revenue streams is heat recapture. Uh, a Bitcoin mining operation produces a lot of heat and you can take that heat and use it for drying fruits, drying foods, um, heating water for the local populace. Um, there's a whole, there's a whole, oh, you can heat your house with it. Um, so these things will provide a new revenue stream for mining, which will allow you to offset some of the risks with mining. As just, just if you just mine by yourself, you have lots of risk of the difficulty increasing, hash rate increasing, or Bitcoin price going down. But if you're selling uh, fruits with the heat that you make, you can offset some of that risk. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to, um, are there any other technical or otherwise elements that uh, you want to just point out? about demand pool? Sure, so it's, again, so it's built from the bottom up strand V2. Um, this is the first mining pool that will allow for your block templates to be created, um, increasing efficiency. So if you're a miner in a location that is a little bit away from a local internet point or away from any large city, you can mine with Stratum V2 uh, with demand um, and, and, and gain efficiency gains and gain security. So this 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 pool is, is very good for these miners located in regions where you might not have the best internet. Yeah. Uh, so any, as, as we've spoken about in terms of regions like Middle East and Africa, but do you have any, I guess, countries in particular that you think you're, you're bullish on seeing more Bitcoin mining come to? Sure. So Ethiopia is becoming a very large uh, hub right now. Um, Kuwait is big. Uh, Bahrain is big. Saudi Arabia is becoming a little bit more on the map. Um, there's Latin American uh, countries like Paraguay, Argentina. And we're starting to see some more interest in Peru and Chile, which is I'm very interested in. So yeah, it's 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 a it's a natural evolution of Bitcoin mining. Um, whenever there is energy where it's stranded, otherwise wasted, you put a Bitcoin mining uh, operation there, and you can generate money with it. Yeah, and that definitely cuts against this whole oh no, Bitcoin mining boiling the oceans, bad for the climate. I mean, it's simply not true, and that, that's that's just not the that's not truth. And uh, do you have a how would you explain that quickly to people? Well, it's it's a kind of it, it's an ignorant statement because um, a lot of this, a lot of the people who use who are mining right now are using otherwise stranded energy, as you said. But let's let's give, let's give an example. Um, I know I, I've worked with an operation that uses 
um, the pig manure to generate that generates methane. They capture that methane with uh, with equipment, and they generate electricity. And so they're basically capturing that methane that otherwise would have been into the environment. Methane is much worse for C uh, for global warming. Um, so they capture that and they generate electricity, make money off of it with the Bitcoin mining operation connected to it, and they're they're they're, they're helping the environment. It's a perfect it's a perfect match. Yeah, and I mean even for me, I think the global warming stuff is a scam personally, but yeah. even from their own perspective, it doesn't even make sense, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, but anyway, let's finish it there. Where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Bit Entrepreneur and um, the uh, pool is uh, demand underscore pool. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Alejandro de la Torre. Hi everyone, I'm here now at Bitcoin Oasis with Luke Dasher. He is uh, CTO and I believe you are chairman of Ocean Mining, right? Uh, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. So, uh, look, I think the, the question on a lot of people's minds will be how you're thinking about the, the spam question. So, uh, maybe you want to just define for people, you know, because some people have this mindset of, well, many people have the mindset that, okay, Bitcoin is permissionless and it's kind of difficult to non-arbitrarily define spam. Uh, but I believe you have a different view. How would you define spam on the chain? Using Bitcoin, I would agree, is permissionless, but attacking Bitcoin is quite different. Spam is generally and broadly defined as anything that people have not consented to participate in or not, don't want to participate in, but they're being forced to against their will. And so everybody who's adopted Bitcoin has agreed to this monetary use case and financial transactions, even to an extent smart contracts. But nobody has, well, I'm not, not nobody, but everybody has not all agreed to storing other data processing altcoin stuff that's not even part of Bitcoin, like the ordinals and inscriptions. And so the fact that there is not this unanimous support for these things means that they are spam. I see. And so I guess in a sense it's like a almost like a opt-in social contract kind of argument you're making here that basically if you're using Bitcoin you've agreed to the monetary uses and you, it, arguably even if it's a monetary use that you disagree with, right, if it's like terrorism or things like that, you would say technically everyone's opted in for that but not right. for the, the spam of the inscriptions, etc. Right. I see. And it, it's possible to put these things on a new blockchain that is even tied into Bitcoin and people can opt into that. So, But the only reason to be putting it on Bitcoin's main blockchain is if the intention is to attack Bitcoin and force this on people who do not consent. I see. And so I think the other question a lot of people will have is the viability of actually filtering it out. Because, you know, a lot of people, as, as I'm sure you've seen, that people share that meme, the information theory, etc., or that uh, if you try to stop them in one way, that they the spammers will basically find another way to get their spam included, you know, as arbitrary file inclusion into the, you know, taproot, uh, the witness component, or in the case of stamps or BRC20, it's just into the UTXO set. So could you just comment a little bit on how you believe it's viable to even, you know, stop the spam? Um, first, you have to understand that ultimately it is possible to do a soft fork that completely maybe not completely eliminates it, but makes it much more expensive to the point where ordinary transactions can compete. But you don't even have to get that far. There's several stages before that with the spam filtration, which can all individually be effective and have been effective for the last decade plus, which Bitcoin has been using them. They just need a, there, there just happens to be a bug that was introduced at the same time as, but not by Taproot, that 
these inscriptions are using to bypass the existing filters. So I guess I partially agree and partially disagree, and I'm curious to hear where you disagree. So I agree that it's spam. I personally just don't view it as being possible to really meaningfully filter it out. And here's how I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it like, even if you were to adapt some of these things like stop bare multi-sig equals zero or the data carrier size issue in Bitcoin Core, Bitcoin Core only has releases on average every six months, right? And so that means you're kind of relying on the network updating to that, but then the spammers can just basically rely on the fact that not everybody's updated and also use this kind of API method of you know, out-of-band inclusion uh, by basically going to the miners and paying them to include their spam in the blocks. So I'm curious what you see there and why you still think it's feasible even if... Okay, I guess, let me put, let me put the question this way. How many nodes do you think would need to update to using, let's say, knots or some kind of filtering version at the mempool layer before filtering could be realistically you know, stopped or at least massively lowered? It's to a large extent on the miners to do the spam filtering. Once the nodes upgrade, it gradually will make it harder and harder to get the transactions to the miners. And when you say that miners can just bypass the nodes, that's technically true. But at that point, we're dealing with hostile miners and what percent of the network are these hostile miners. And then it's a completely different problem from just spam. It's an existential threat. So, in one reading of Bitcoin, it could be also seen that it's like, it's ta it takes two to tango, right? The spammers are there, providing a monetary incentive, but a lot of the miners are maybe not as aligned with, let's say, you and I on the monetary view of Bitcoin, and they see it as more like, just, hey, we're just a bunch of profit maximalists here, and we'll just take whatever people give us, and my, I guess the way I'm seeing it is, is it's more going to become like a stalemate where, let's say, those of us who believe in the monetary use of Bitcoin are not going to be able to enforce what we want onto the miners and they're just going to say, screw you, I'm going to take spammer money, whether it's on-chain in the fee or whether it's out-of-band paid in a different way. Again, that gets back to miners that are essentially malicious. And also, by filtering the spam and resisting this attack, it not only does it potentially impact what the miners have available to them and how the miners behave, but also it makes it harder for spammers to pass this off as something legitimate being built on Bitcoin, which it really isn't. And so it also impacts their ability to get funding for these attacks. I see, yeah. And so I guess that's maybe a, an aspect of criticism at the social layer. And I probably, I probably agree with you on the social layer aspect of it. I just, maybe I'm a bit more bearish on actually being able to stop them. Uh, but uh, it... I'm curious as well. So let's hypothetically say, you know, some of these changes were made. We did node mempool level filtering, but not consensus level filtering. Uh, what's, uh, you know, or even, or even if we, even if I gave you that, let's say we even went to the level of trying to soft fork a filter that stops, let's say, inscriptions and some of these ordinal people. What's to stop them finding another way to package things into a transaction in a way that you know is not so easy to filter or stop like let's say let's say we do one round of filtering they they do another round of response what what then well let's stop before the consensus level with spam filters the benefit of doing it with policy is that we can just continually update and we can hypothetically update faster than them if it really comes down to it but even in the context where Bitcoin Core does, let's say, six monthly releases, I mean, the spammers could just, okay, they could see, okay, Bitcoin Core has this new spam filter coming out in the next release. Oh, let's just change our, our meta protocol. 
Sure. It's possible to have a maybe not the main Bitcoin core releases, but just spam filter updates regularly. It, do, it wouldn't take a whole release to do that. But do you see the network at the whole updating to that? Like, think about all the different node protocols out there, all the node, uh, you know, whether it's Umbral and Raspberry Blitz and all the different ones out there, as well as just everyday users out there, you think they're all going to update their filter protocol to sort of go along with, with, the, with the filtering plan? Well, that's the beauty of it being a policy. It doesn't require everyone to update. The more people update, the more effective it becomes. So, at the end of the day, how many people do you think, like if you had to estimate how many nodes need to update to do this kind of filtering, what percentage of them do you think we need to get to do this spamming, spam filtering? It's not even a threshold. The more nodes that update, the better. All right, well, okay, so I guess, you know, let's, let's leave that there, but let's talk a little bit more generally about Ocean, what you guys are doing. Uh, any, any, any updates there on uh, Stratum V2? No significant updates yet. Okay. Um, yeah. We don't want to prematurely say we're going to have it in two weeks and then yeah. something comes up and it's not yeah. ready in two weeks, yeah. you know. Yeah, fair enough. And so on uh, any other question or any other points you want to share around... Um, this is actually this is an interesting point for discussion. I've seen some people say that, uh, and I believe it might have been Mechanic actually, but uh, uh, some people were saying that the amount you get based on the amount of hash rate you're contributing with other pools is not as much as what you're getting if you're mining with Ocean. Can you explain why that might be? The FPPS payout system is based on the average of rewards and fees in all the miners' blocks, which is tends to be lower than a pool that's like Ocean and doesn't have huge fees. I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, I guess it just comes down to, so basically you're saying it comes down to the way the mining um, payout structure is done, that actually there are some miners who are finding that they're getting more using Ocean even with, even with let's say, filtering out spam transactions. Right. The spam transactions really make a very small difference, maybe 0.2%, and just not having a fee counters that, but the way, because of the FPPS overheads, it's just been shocking how much difference miners are telling us they're making so much more on Ocean. Yeah, interesting. And I'm also curious as well, when it comes to spam, uh, I guess I've seen different arguments on why it's bad. So some people say, well, it's adding to the growth in the UTXO set and that, uh, you know, the, especially BRC20 and stamps have really contributed to the growth in the UTXO set, um, but not as much, let's say, the vanilla ordinals and inscriptions. Uh, but uh, others say maybe the impact is more that it's uh, that it's prematurely pricing out monetary users, right? Because, because the BRC20 people are so high time preference they spend so much to get into the next block because they want to do the mint that it prices out self-custodial users. From your perspective what do you see is like the really what are the big objections you have against the spam in terms of what it means for monetary you know Bitcoin adoption? Um, yeah I guess there's several things. The biggest one with blockchain growth in general has always been that it, it makes it harder for people to run nodes and Things like stamps that pollute the UTXO set in addition are especially bad in that regard. But I would say the node aspect, it doesn't seem to have bloated the 
you know, the blockchain growth that much, but it has seemed to have bloated the UTXO set a lot, uh, at least in terms of, you know, last I checked, the chain size is about 620 gigabytes, uh, and, you know, hard drive space is not that expensive nowadays, but it seems to me the UTXO set growth is maybe a little bit more of a issue. Uh, but I know you're, you're also a, you know, a known small block guy as well. Um, do you want to respond to any of that? The Hard drive space has never been the concern for blockchain size. It's really just the, the processing time to do it an initial sync for a new node. And that the blockchain currently is growing much faster than the technology has been improving to keep up with it. Yeah, I see. Uh, and so uh, when it comes to uh, Ocean, are you seeing, because you're offering, uh, as I believe there's three main templates you're currently offering for people. Uh, do you want to comment a little bit on how, what the adoption has been like with those three templates? Like, what, what, what are you seeing there? Almost everyone is sticking to the Ocean recommended template, the default. Okay. Uh, great. Okay. So, uh, any other things you want to mention about Ocean and Bitcoin mining just while we're here? Um, our hash rate's growing. Hopefully, it'll be enough for a block a day soon. Great. Well, uh, okay. Well, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll just leave it. Where, where can listeners uh, or anyone watching find you guys out if they want to find more info? Um, we, we're on Twitter as Ocean underscore Mining, and the website for the pool is Ocean.xyz. Fantastic. Thanks, Luke. Back to the show in a moment. The lead sponsor of this show is Swan.com, a leading Bitcoin-only financial services brand. This is an amazing way to get started with Bitcoin. You can send in your dirty fiat using ACH or wire and then start buying Bitcoin that way. Now you can do that either with a smash buy, just purchase a lump sum, or you can set up an automated savings plan or a Bitcoin savings plan. So it's common for many people, they might start out with a lump sum and then proceed to using an automated recurring savings plan or Bitcoin purchase plan. That also can help you deal with the volatility. Now, for those of you who are buying larger amounts of Bitcoin, let's say over $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, check out Swan Private over at swanprivate.com. Swan Private will provide you a concierge level service. And this is a great way for those of you who want some additional guidance, if you want uh, additional support for other kinds of account types, whether that's retirement accounts or trust accounts or business and corporate accounts, Swan Private can help you there. Swan also makes a range of free learning resources available to you and also Swan wants you to withdraw to your own self-custody with free automated withdrawals. So you can set that up and you can even set up a threshold for your withdrawals, generally above 1 million Satoshis or 5 million sats or 10 million sats. You can set up your thresholds so that way you can be regularly buying Bitcoin but withdraw on a threshold that makes sense to you. So to go and sign up for that, go and check out the website over at swan.com. This show also brought to you by mempool.space, the leading Bitcoin and blockchain visualizer. You can use mempool.space to target the fee for your transaction, depending on where things are with the fees and the block space 
at that time, it can be very beneficial for you to make sure you target your fee appropriately. So I use mempool.space all the time. I'm often just checking out the mempool just to see what's in there. And they are always adding new features and ways to visualize things and see what's going on. I like that they've got the mempool goggles, which is a new feature that allows you to toggle on and off some of the different filters and views to see what kind of transactions are moving through the mempool, whether they are you know, multi-sig or not, whether they're inscriptions or not, or various uh, different things, whether they are signaling RBF replaced by fee. And so there's a lot of cool things you can see there over on the website at mempool.space. And don't forget, they've got an accelerator coming out. So if you want to get on the wait list for that, go to mempool.space slash accelerator. And now back to the show. Hi guys, I'm here with Prince Philip of Serbia. He is also the CSO, Chief Strategy Officer of Jan3. So um, let's start with a little bit on, obviously you're focused on nation-state adoption. So uh, Philip, tell us a little bit about what you're, you're seeing there on the nation-state adoption front. Sure, hey Stefan, it's good to be here. Good to see you in Dubai, in your hometown right yeah. now. Um, yeah, nation-state adoption in Bitcoin. So as, as, as we all know that Bitcoin is a grassroots movement, it's a bottom-up strategy, but we feel that there needs to be a little bit of a hand top-down, and that's where Jan3 comes in. It's a, um, I mean, we, people should know it by now, it's a, it's a Bitcoin technology company focused on, on, the, on the speeding up of the hyper-Bitcoinization. And we are out there trying to speak to politicians, leaders, individuals, uh, anyone who has access to policy makers, to, uh, to local authorities, about any form of uh, Bitcoin adoption, whether it is trying to uh, tell them about the, uh, the benefits of using it as legal tender, to constructing some sort of uh, Bitcoin bond, or merely just helping them to improve about the, uh, the, the regulations and understanding the difference between Bitcoin and crypto, for example. Um, Bitcoin adoption gonna, is going to be done in so many shapes and forms. I personally think that the, one of the big, biggest ways it's going to be done in the next few years is going to be through uh, mining. I think that if you, that countries, as we are, uh, as, as countries realize that they have energy resources, that that energy can then be turned into money. And I think a lot of people are going to be orange pilled on the whole fact that Bitcoin uh, um, uh, is not is not just a monetary revolution, but an energy revolution as well. And that drive for the need for more energy is actually going to make our energy situation not globally a much uh, a much better place. And so, yeah, I think there's going to be some exciting news in the next couple of years. Uh, I don't know where exactly it's going to come from, but we've had some exciting meetings. Samson and Ben, who's our new CEO, not new anymore, he's been around for a year now, our COO, were, they were in Suriname meeting with the president. Uh, if you don't know where Suriname is, it's in northern um, South America. And it's not a massive country, like 600,000, 500,000 people, but they are financially in a bad position. Inflation's in the double digits, maybe 50-60%, but they, uh, they are energy rich, they found some oil recently, and of course the oil vultures are there surrounding them, and we want to advise them that, uh, that, that, that strategies of ways of, uh, of, of, regain, of, of retaining their sovereignty, and also uh, maybe that they can allocate maybe a percent or two of their, of their, global, of their uh, reserves, um, central bank reserves, into Bitcoin. Also, we're in conversations with Montenegro, with the Prime Minister Montenegro, who's a, um, who's a friend. And he's into crypto, he's not fully orange-pilled yet. 
but he understands, he, under he gets it, and we talked uh, last June, we had a meeting with him, and we talked about loads of different things, from uh, a community like a Bitcoin beach, to putting uh, uh, to buying Bitcoin on the on the on the reserves, to mining it. So I think we are now going to go in and meeting with him in the next couple of months to, to talk about some mining project. As you know, the European Union is sorry. I should say that he was he is formed a new government and in his European centric party, and he um, in order to um, to. to uh, in order to, for them to, uh, to to gain those funds from the European Union, they need to they need to meet certain goals, and some of these goals are these en crazy energy goals for, for 2030 net zero bullshit stuff. Sorry, I swear. Um, and uh, because of this, Montenegro has had to cut back on their on their coal consumption. It was their base load of about 80%, and now they've cut back to maybe about 20, 30%, and it's causing a real big headache for poor, uh, for the energy producers there. And they've ramped up their solar and wind energy, and as you know, that's a disaster. So we want to go in there with a plan of, high, of, of improving this energy mix and finding ways of, uh, of, of tapping the hydroelectricity, maybe even geothermal, and making their base load much more manageable. For example, and maybe structuring some uh, some Bitcoin bond, uh, some uh, public uh, private partnership. We're still in figuring out what we're going to do over there. But um, so there's exciting things happening here and there. Yeah, I mean, lots of other conversations. We have Telegram groups in loads of other countries: New Zealand, South Africa. Uh, I mean Brazil, you name it. We have we have groups uh, chatting about how we're going to get to these to to politicians and uh, and. Um, and decision makers all over the world. So I'm curious because obviously in some ways Bitcoin can reduce the power of the state. So how do you sort of approach that conversation with them when it could reduce their power? Is it more just about sort of finding a way to have a win-win? Like is finding a way that maybe if that nation state were to do Bitcoin mining, now they've got income out of it or, uh, you know. That's exactly it. It's, uh, it's a tough one. <laughs> Uh, Bitcoin is all about decentralization. It's about taking power away from the centralized forces and uh, distributing it through the decentralized uh, um, um, ethos. What is Bitcoin? So yes, there has to be a sort of a win-win situation, as you, as you uh, perfectly said. But you use this to their advantage and say, look, through something like mining, if you create a Bitcoin bond, you can reduce the tax on people. You can find ways of uh, of putting money back into the economy without having to raise one without having to raise one tax or having to having to print any more money or go into debt. It's beautiful. There's many things that you can be done on Bitcoin that will benefit people and benefit uh, the politicians. Yeah. So let's chat a bit about Aqua. I know this is a new wallet that you guys put out, and you can sort of. As I understand it, you can have Bitcoin on-chain, you can also have LBTC with self-custody, and then it's also got swaps built into it. So it has Tether, but across multiple chains. It has Liquid Tether and also uh, Ethereum Tether and Tron Tether, and also it has a swap infrastructure for Lightning. So uh, that's my understanding of it. Uh, go on. Apart from that, uh, no, it's just the ability to be able to transfer out into ECR20 and Sean. Uh, yeah, and yeah. So when you, you transfer in, you can use that, but we'll will hold it on Bitcoin, on Bitcoin, on, uh, on Liquid. On Liquid, yeah. We don't hold th those tokens. We just have the, uh, we use side swap to be yeah. able to do that swap. Yeah, yeah. To be clear, it's, it's kind of like 
keeping the balance in LBTC or in USDT, but swapping using a swap service to kind of swap in and out if you exactly. if you need that service. So I, I'm curious, um, you know, what your hope is there. I know you are really trying for LATAM adoption there. Yes. So. Latin America is primed for Bitcoin adoption. Latin America, when I was uh, in Argentina in uh, November 2022, I saw that, you, that they really need to use the US dollar and they like to have exposure to the US dollar because their peso is, had horrible inflation. When I was there, it wasn't as bad as it was recently, but it was you know, definitely double digits. And everyone has once dollar exposure to some extent. And this is not just in Latin America, but all, most Latin American countries. So we saw a Samson saw the gap that uh, there's no wallet out there that is predominantly Bitcoin centric with USDT on liquid that allows people to have their saving, savings account in Bitcoin, but also their spending account in USDT on liquid, but also Bitcoin on liquid and, and, and Lightning. So it's trying, to, it's trying to fill that gap that where people want the dollar exposure, but also that savings account, and they can go between in and out of one and the other. And you can use that, I mean, it's, max, I'm a maxi, right? I'm a Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin maxi through and through, but I see the need of USDT um, Tether because it kind of is that gateway to Bitcoin adoption. People will see, will, uh, will, 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 who are not really sure about Bitcoin but need to use USDT Tether but need to download that wallet that has Bitcoin will then see, oh, what's this Bitcoin? And then we'll start put, maybe putting their, uh, their assets into Bitcoin and start getting orange pill by that as they'll see their, uh, their savings grow over time. Yeah. So I can see it like the, definitely the positive is that uh, people can maybe have a smoother pathway into Bitcoin. I think one challenge I see though is that uh, maybe it's hard to communicate to people what exactly the trade-off is around liquid, right? Because ultimately, when you hold LBTC, yes, you're self-custodying it, but really it's kind of held by the Liquid Federation, right? And so there's kind of, this, I guess it's a bit of a challenge of like trying to explain to a new coiner, oh, hey, hold, the, hold these 12 words, and it's kind of, this LBTC and some of the tether is kind of custodied for you by this federation. Like, could you just explain a bit, how can we approach that conversation for, you know, new coiners to kind of help them understand but at the same time, you're, I know you don't want to scare them off with too much complexity, right? <laughs> I don't want to get into complexity because I don't know really how to get into complexity. But I would say that uh, the federated model of, um, of, of, of Liquid is it, it wor it's actually proved itself during uh, this ordinal situation right now that we've had right now. And it's lowered fees for a lot of people transacting in Bitcoin. So I only see a positive there. Yes, it centralizes Bitcoin. But you could argue that uh, uh, Lightning has its issues as well. So there are some trade-offs that you have to bear, but at the end of the day, it is still backed by Bitcoin itself. And the federations, is I believe, is decentralized, are decentralized enough for there not to be a, 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 a proper centralized point of attack. So I think this is something that we can talk about more in a, in, in a more technical conversation, but I'm not that person. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. I think it's, it's more just about, you know, when we're bringing new, new coiners in and it's kind of the difficulty of explaining to them what exactly they're holding. But at the same time... It's yeah. all about our, our wallets, it's all about uh, user, user experience. You know, I think to onboard the next billion people onto Bitcoin is we have to make the wallets as simple as possible. And, and as safe as possible. We are obviously open source and self-custody. That is number one. 
those two, I mean, without those, you know, you're not really a Bitcoin, you're not really doing Bitcoin. So that's really important. But we want to make the user interface experience so easy for them to go in from out from one from one from one form of Bitcoin to the other, and also with USDT Tether, and make it as seamless as possible um, that your grandmother can use. Yeah. Um, how has the conversation gone on getting nation states to actually adopt Bitcoin as a savings, as a reserve asset? It's, it's, I mean, we just had conversations with Suriname. Uh, we, Samson spoke to the president of, uh, of Colombia as well. I said, as I said, I spoke to the, uh, to the prime minister of Montenegro, but really that's, uh, we try to get people onto, onto, yeah. onto understanding, but it's something that um, central, central banks are not going to be very uh, transparent about what they're holding. Yeah. All we know, Many central banks are already holding Bitcoin as we speak. If they see that fiat is going to one day disappear uh, and there's a threat from Bitcoin, then the best insurance head against Bitcoin is to buy Bitcoin. So if it, they see it as a, a like a one percent threat, they'll buy one percent Bitcoin. And then if they see it like a hundred percent threat, then yeah. they'll get they'll they'll start stacking Bitcoin. Yeah. And I see and I know a lot of I don't know, but I'm pretty sure some nations there are holding Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how about just conversations at the at Bitcoin Oasis? Uh, are there any uh, what's what's it been like uh, chatting with people here? How, how how do you feel the the relative level of understanding of Bitcoin is here? High level understanding. Uh, really happy to be at a Bitcoin only event and in Dubai. It's my first time here. Very impressed by Dubai. I'm very impressed by how safe, clean, and orderly it is. Uh, maybe it has to do something that they're a monarchy or not. That's another, that's another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but so with the people, the attendees over here, a great level of conversation. Some really knowledgeable people like yourself, and really real uh, industry people that have been in the space for many, many years. And as I said, I'm not very technical, but I'm hearing a lot of technical conversations, but also a lot of philosophical and, and ideological conversations happening on the side as well. So I've been thoroughly entertained, and I believe the size of the conference is. is great not too many people um, it feels uh, personal enough that you can like kind of get to speak to everybody but not uh, in person enough that it's just like um, where, where it's too many people and you are always have to go bump into someone else and all that I feel that you can really have a much more a, a really uh, personal experience over here great well uh, those are the key questions I had so where can people find you online People can find me on, on Twitter or X at uh, Prince Philip One. That's P R I N C F I L I P One, and Jan Three Com. Great, yeah. great. I'll put the links in the show notes. Thanks. Okay, here we are. I've got Pete Rizzo, who's at Bitcoin Magazine, and uh, we're going to chat a little bit and have a kind of debate, but also just discussion about uh, you know what what's what's good for Bitcoin, you know. Uh, but let let's start with this question of. Uh, you know, the spam, as I like to call it, or maybe the ordinals, as you like to call it. Uh, in your view, is it good or bad for Bitcoin? What do you think? Well, I think when we're talking about whether it's good or bad, uh, you know, you sort of have to ask to whom or for what, right? So that implies some sort of goal there. Um, you know, my whole point in trying to popularize this conversation around ordinals is that whether you think it's good or bad, it's objectively happening, right? So we've kind of insulated ourselves from reality a bit because, you know, essentially there is arbitrary data being added to the blockchain. It's being added at a rate that far exceeds kind of any historical precedent. Uh, and there's a much different, this is a much different context than any time where this has happened before, right? So um, one of the things I've tried to do is broaden the discussion and say, 
you know, we as Bitcoiners, like, Bitcoin is not a DAO, right? You don't have a vote on what Bitcoin does. That's not how it functions, right? Bitcoin has a crypto anarchic governance. Bitcoin is permissionless. And now a new group of people is doing things with Bitcoin, uh, and they are, have different goals than the current users. Um, and I would invite people to consider that Bitcoin might be accommodating both of those people very well right now, uh, with less uh, headaches than would have otherwise been possible. Uh, but yeah, look, I think that we, before we can have a conversation about whether it's good or bad, we have to agree that it's happening, and we have to talk about why it's happening. Uh, and then we have to have a, an effective conversation about like specifically what is going on. Because you know the Ordinals conversation, Ordinals gets a lot of the kind of attention, but there's BitVM, which is a tremendous advance in how Bitcoin L2s can be restructured. There's Stamps, which is a you know fairly negative protocol in terms of how it adds arbitrary data to the blockchain. There's BRC20, which again is like a fairly inefficient protocol that has contributed to a lot of the kind of angst around ordinals. But you know, again, because we are not having a conversation that is grounded in observable logic, like what is actually happening, who is doing what to whom. Uh, we can't separate all these things, right? So I'm really trying to move the conversation more to just a grounded reality. Let's just agree and talk about what's happening. Yeah. So, so let me put it this way. I think the reason when people are talking about ordinal, sometimes what they really mean is kind of all of those things, right? They don't just mean the, the Casey Rodama-style ordinals, but they mean inclusive of stamps, BRC20, and some of these other more pollutive or purposely inefficient protocols that are arguably making it harder for new users to sync a node and so I guess that's maybe that's where some of the criticism lies I, I think and I mean to be fair there is an element here of it takes two to tango right like the spammers want to spam and the miners want to accept their payments right they want to sell block space to the spammers and I think that is where I mean personally that's why I'm not pro filtering personally because I don't think it would work but I think maybe there is some level of social layer here where if I view that as spam, I would not want to, you know, like that example I made when we were, you know, kind of discussing back and forth online, I see them more like, they're kind of like email spammers. And if we were hosting early conferences about email in the early days of email, we wouldn't invite the spammers on stage. We wouldn't be lauding them. We'd sort of treat them as, hey, that's spam. And we're just going to leave that to the side. And we're going to move on with like advancing the email protocol or something like that, right? What, what do you think about that? Um, I think the idea that you can be indifferent to what's happening is incredibly naive. Um, I think that while you may make the suggestive ar su subjective argument that this is the case, you're not going to discourage the current group of people who are using Bitcoin for what they're using it for from doing that. Um, so again, I've tried to construct this argument in such a way where I've said, objectively what is happening is that the crypto intellectual capital is coming back to Bitcoin. So there was a wall that we built, right? We built sort of a Berlin wall. There was crypto and then there was Bitcoin and there was a big and in the middle. So I think what people have failed, because again, we've had a very insert conversation, there's a whole group of Bitcoin, sorry, Ethereum developers, Solana developers who have looked at stuff like centralization with Lido, the move to proof of stake and just sort of how that's led to a lot of centralization in Ethereum. And they're looking at their monetary policy and move to staking, and they see that those haven't been affected. Right? So those are all real incentives that are driving intellectual capital from one group to another group. Uh, and they are going to start using, they want to start moving the things that they were working on to Bitcoin. Right? And so they're starting that uh, by doing what you would expect them to do, which is they're bringing their existing ideas 
and they're moving them over to Bitcoin to see if they're possible. And so, you know, my question really is how I would flip that back is okay, why should we stop that migration? Like, what is inherently negative about that? Uh, because in order to think that that's negative, you have to think that this whole group of people can't solve any problems for us. So let me put it this way. I think that maybe there's a slight confusion that, you know, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I think the way people are trying to use rhetoric is say, oh, look, you're against the builders. We're builders here and, you, you know, you hodlers and you monetary users only want a certain type of building. And maybe for the monetary users, they see it like, no, nah, that stuff is not useful to us. We care about advancing Bitcoin as a money. And all this other stuff is kind of contradictory to the money aspects, right? So I think there are very few people who have adopted Bitcoin uh, through sound money, through education, without priorly kind of speculating or engaging in some other crypto market. If you look at most of the people who kind of within the, even the Bitcoin maximalist community, a lot of us you know, have stories about how we used to be confident in the crypto market, we were enthusiastic about it, um, and we stopped doing that. And I think an interesting thing to consider is that maybe we're fighting what is a natural adoption path. Like maybe it is simply true that people, you know, need to take a lot of time to understand Bitcoin and that, you know, something that gets their interest initially. So I find it weird that the people who argue for like the sound money kind of like, okay, Bitcoin changes incentives uh, kind of rhetoric don't apply this to, okay, well, Obviously, that's if that's true, and I, I believe that's true, then over time, Bitcoin aligns everyone's incentives. Uh, then we're simply dealing with a group of people who right now aren't as aligned, but eventually will be aligned. So if they come and they build a lot of things that aren't useful, um, but they're not adding transactions or bringing capital to the crypto apparatus, which we agree is negative. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, Tether is widely seen very positively in the Bitcoin ecosystem when it, as a blockchain, net reduces the amount of transactions that occur on Bitcoin. So Tether moves the US dollar to a Bitcoin-type decentralized payment rail, uh, and because it offers that stability, uh, it uh, reduces transaction demand for Bitcoin. There's a group of users who would otherwise use Bitcoin that use Tether. But we seem to think that that's positive. And then I think what's interesting about, you know, especially when you get to Ordinals and BitVM, it's like, these are schemes that are actually net reducing the number of transactions on things like Ethereum and Solana that we have kind of, you know, uh, set ourselves up as adversarial against. And they're bringing that net activity to Bitcoin. And I think it's really interesting that we find one of those positive and one of those negative, because when I describe them as such, uh, it would seem to me that the one that is bringing net demand to Bitcoin and reducing the demand from things that have been destructive, you know, to our, advance, our advancing of the technology, uh, why we can't celebrate that, uh, you know, so I don't know, that's my perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, let me try to resolve a contradiction, I guess. I, I, again, it depends on your own view. Some people actually do view Tether as, you know, you shouldn't promote that, or I, I don't know, others at Bitcoin Magazine are sort of critical of stablecoins, let's say. Um, and so maybe from their perspective, Tether is a downside too. Um, but I mean, personally, I see it as I don't promote stablecoins. I understand why people use them, though. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, they're, they're going to they're gonna do what they're going to do. I can't stop them. But I think the difference for me is more like I don't, I wouldn't promote ordinals. I wouldn't invest in ordinals. You know, I wouldn't uh, or spam, as I would rather call it. Um, so I, I think there is a difference there, right? Well, Between, let me, let me you know. Ask you a question about yeah. spam. Okay, so um, <clears throat> it recently came out that Peter Todd went to Guatemala and he helped the judicial committee of that country certify an election on Bitcoin. So this is a non-monetary use case of Bitcoin that clearly has 
positive implications and it, ha it seems to have a product market fit. So that also added arbitrary data to the blockchain. So is that an attack on Bitcoin in your view? That's a good question. And I think the way I see it, there's also kind of the element of it matters if they're using efficient ways of, you know, using the chain, right? Like Peter Todd and some of the other guys who are using those things are at least doing it in more chain efficient ways. Whereas like, to me, the BRC20 and stamps is the more objectionable aspect where they are quite literally doing it in the, you know, in a purposely or uh, let's say, uh, well, in, this, in the case of stamps, I would argue it's intentionally being done in a yeah, destructive way, right? And whereas maybe with BRC20, it was maybe just done in a very, let's say, inefficient, but not necessarily intentionally malicious way, right? I think well, probably fair I, to I say. Think that goes back to the point that I've tried to make is that I think Casey Rotemar has found himself with few defenders, and I think that's really sad because I think if you look at the topology of the kind of new things that are coming to the Bitcoin network, Ordinals is as a protocol, and again, this is where I think, you know, my interest lies is in the protocol. It's constructed in a really thoughtful way, and it's a interesting critique, right? Like, it has a lot of argumentation built into it, uh, but I think we've allowed ourselves to not have that discussion. Like, we haven't had a really authentic discussion about, like, what it is uh, he has achieved, but I think the other sociological groups, the crypto people have, they've had a really robust conversation about it, and their view is essentially, you know, that he's unlocked a new design space for them. Uh, and I think this just all goes back to, you know, we have to have authentic conversations about what is good and bad. Because like Luke would essentially come to the conclusion, and I asked him this over the weekend, he said, you know, I said, do you view the Guatemalan elections, you know, as spam? And he said, yes, it's arbitrary data on the blockchain, therefore it's spam. Okay. So uh, again, this is incredibly subject subjective stuff. Uh, and this is why I keep trying to frame the conversation of, look, this is happening. I'm not responsible for it. I'm not doing it. I'm not buying or selling ordinals on a daily basis. Uh, I can't stop that activity. We've looked as a community at the number of ways that this can be stopped. A lot of them seem like they're much worse, right? They're cutting off your nose to spite your face. And so if we have to live in this reality, the rhetorical question that I've essentially asked is like, how can we get something out of this that is good for Bitcoin? Like if this is going to happen, and again, it's, it seems to be happening. The, the venture capital is coming back. People are building things on Bitcoin. I agree. I don't think a lot of the things that they're going to build are going to be useful. But if we're not having a dialogue with this group, how do we achieve anything? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things where I might disagree a little bit. I mean, I, I kind of agree on some things. I disagree on others, right? Like, I agree that we probably can't stop it. Like, I would disagree with, say, Luke on the filtering aspect, right? I'm not pro filters, mainly because I think it's going to be, it's going to end up in a stalemate and not really stop them. But I kind of disagree about this new narrative of like, oh, we're Bitcoin L2s, and really it's kind of like this shitcoin on Bitcoin sort of narrative uh, that we've seen um, people do. You know, it's, there seems to be like a narrative shift of like, oh, look, see, we're like doing something on Bitcoin, but we've got this other token, and it's, uh, yeah. But again, I, yeah. this goes back to the fact that we bedeviled the, you know, the Ordinals protocol on debut when, in fact, Ordinals adds net economic demand to Bitcoin without the introduction of a new token. I mean, you can even think about it where it's like there's going to be a new block mined in the next 10 minutes, and that block will programmatically issue new assets like under the definition of his protocol. So again, if we can't have authentic conversations about what it is that like certain technologies do and what is better or worse, you know, you end up in a position where it's like there's going to be a flood of these things. Some of them are going to be better, and some of them are going to be worse. I don't
But when it comes to authentic conversations, I mean, it's fair to say a bunch of us have been having them. I had Casey on my show like a year ago. I've been writing articles about it myself. And I think it's also fair to say if we're having authentic conversations, we should also point out that the Ordinal's view is an arbitrary view. Not everybody opts into that. You have to run Ordinal's software on top as an extra layer on top of your Bitcoin node in order to acknowledge, you know, oh, that I sent you this Ordinal. Really, it's like a, a, a pointer into uh, the taproot witness that uh, this UTX, it's like some dust that again, points for, to a... For those know. users, it's enough, right? Like, those users don't want anything else, and so it's going to be really hard to make any sort of authentic argument to them because they're saying, they're, they're saying not only is this good enough for us, but this is dramatically better than the standard that existed on Ethereum. So from their perspective, it's, it's a massive upgrade. And so, uh, again, it's going to be really difficult to have that conversation with them because again, these are uh, a lot of them are VC-funded entities. They're for-profit companies. They have existing business models, existing users, and it's a whole group of community of people. But again, what's the alternative? Do you want them to never use Bitcoin? Like, I, you want them to accept Bitcoin on your terms only? Like that—that's the—that's the terms of engagement here. I, I really don't understand this idea that Bitcoin. Uh, is under attack or like is you know is on the bridge of failing or that like we the users have to do something about it um. yeah but I mean to be clear I have, I'm, I, I'm not viewing it as like a showstopper issue I'm seeing it as like a nuisance level that we can't really stop kind of thing that is sli you know slightly negative for Bitcoin but it's not going to stop us overall and it you know it kind of it's helping it, like it's allowing these spammer people and some of these degen people who want to you know mint BRC20 tokens to try to pump and dump. And, you know, I, I still believe there's a chance it's a fad, right? So at the end of the day, maybe, you know, we can't stop this thing and it's just gonna, it's just gonna happen. And uh, maybe that's really, the, the silver lining, maybe, is that, uh, you know, maybe there's some technology that eventually helps monetary users, but maybe not, we don't know. But again, what are, what are monetary users? And then we know right now we don't have the technical infrastructure to fully scale to a world where we're as large as we want. Like even if you take the, you know, peer-to-peer -peer lightning payments in Africa, let's just say that you're, that's a really attractive use case to you. Uh, you have to accept that we don't currently have the net infrastructure to accommodate, like, let's just say every, every transaction that was taking place in Africa can't take place on the, uh, maybe you disagree, on the Lightning infrastructure and Bitcoin infrastructure. Oh, look, I mean, I think it's uncontroversial to say that Bitcoin, if you're talking on-chain and Lightning, probably doesn't support, it's probably supporting somewhere in the range of 10 to 100 million people, which is nowhere near 8 billion, right? I'll, I'll add one more thing. I, I just think a lot of these arguments, they're negativistic about people, right? I think that we have to be able to believe that people who are exposed to Bitcoin will ultimately adopt a value set that is aligned with Bitcoin. And I find the lack of, uh, you know, optimism towards that really troubling because, again, we've spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about how Bitcoin aligns incentives, talking about how Bitcoin changes people's lives. And I think we're going to have to be patient with this group of people uh, because, again, like, you know, look at the BitVM white paper. The first reference in that paper is to uh, an Ethereum paper, right? There is a cross-pollination of ideas that has happened largely in the crypto space and this intellectual capital. That's really, I think, my interest is that there is intellectual capital on the other side of this wall. And I think attracting that intellectual capital to Bitcoin is a net good. And I think that's what makes me bullish about, uh, you know, what's currently happening is that there's a chance to get people who can help us with our mission and our cause and build things that are done in the right way. But I think we have to have a conversation 
conversation with those people first. Yeah, and I mean, personally, I'm not against uh, BitVM. I, you know, I think it's interesting technology, and we'll see what happens with it. And there's no uh, shitcoin involved with it. Uh, but I guess let's leave it there. I think we've, you know, we've had our um, back and forth about what we think. Um, any uh, any closing thoughts for people, and where can people find you? Pete Rizzo, <coughs> Bitcoin historian on Twitter, um, or now X. Um, but yeah, uh, closing thoughts. Um, you know, I think uh, we all would like Bitcoin to be certain things and have reach a certain level of adoption. And I think we should just be open-minded and dealing with this new group of people. Uh, we should give them the benefit of the doubt and engage when and when they are being malicious uh, and have authentic conversations with them. So. Yeah. That's my piece. Interesting. So are they spammers or should we accept these people? <laughs> that leaves uh, that's that's an interesting question. And yeah, I think you're right. We we don't necessarily have a choice. So thank you, Pete, for joining me. Back to the show in a moment. When it comes to securing our Bitcoin, we need hardware to secure it above certain amounts and thresholds. Coinkite.com is my favorite here. They make the cold card, which I've been using for years as part of various setups. It's a very versatile and secure device. It has multiple secure elements. It has NFC support, and you'll find it really easy to use with desktop wallets such as Sparrow Wallet. Now, notably, CoinKite are also coming out with a new device, and so the pre-orders for that will be shipping out soon. Keep an eye out for that. So that device is called the Cold Card Q, and that device actually has QR code support as well. So I'm really looking forward to getting uh, my hands on that device and playing around with that. Thinking about Bitcoin, you need to really consider using hardware and I believe dedicated hardware devices really make a lot of sense as opposed to using generic computing devices because often generic computing devices are very difficult to secure and that's why using hardware devices such as the cold card or in the future the cold card queue can make a lot of sense for securing our coins. So if you need to get some hardware for yourself, go to coinkite.com and use code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. And finally, nomadcapitalist.com. So with Bitcoin, as I record this now, Bitcoin's price is crossing above $46,000. If you're living in a high-tax Western country, you might not be getting that much for the amount of tax that you're paying. As many of you know, I left Australia. I felt locked in. I thought it's just not really a great deal here, where if you consider your options around the world and Nomad Capitalists can help you strategize and do this, you can shift overseas and lower your taxes. Now, I'm in Dubai in the UAE, but for you, it doesn't have to necessarily be in the UAE. The, the experts over at Nomad Capitalist can help you craft a plan that's suitable for you and for your family. They have helped people achieve and get passports uh, from dozens of different countries. They've helped people move to dozens of different countries or set up fiat bank accounts across dozens of countries. They have close to 100 countries in terms of connections and information and help helping you put those puzzle pieces together. So they can help you out with uh, strategizing and implementing the plan to move overseas. And that could be from a tax perspective. It could be from a perspective of getting a plan B residence or citizenship and it could also just be that you want to gain additional access to to investments in other countries. So there's all kinds of reasons that you might want to look at this. If you're interested in this, go and check it out over at nomadcapitalist.com slash apply. And now back to the show. 
Hey guys, I'm here with Giacomo Zucco. He is the director of Plan B Network, focused on Bitcoin education. Uh, he gave a talk earlier about uh, Bitcoin as the digital gold standard. But I uh, wanted to get some of your views on you know, Bitcoin technology as well as spam. We should chat about the spam. I know uh, you are a noted uh, critic of the spam. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. How would you, I'm curious, how would you define spam on Bitcoin? Uh, the same way I would define it in every other software system, email, Twitter, spam is an information in an information sharing system which is unwanted by the receiver. That's the definition. The definition doesn't include any cost. Uh, spam is not free because, for example, a, a spam in telephone calls, they will invest money in a, in a call center. Uh, of course, the, the definition of spam is not that nobody finds utility in that because the attacker, the spammer, will always find utility in that. So the only definition, it is unwanted by the user of the system that receives it. It could be a subset of users because maybe they are the, the Twitter bot, the X bots that are just uh, pushing like naked women. Somebody could find it interesting right. somebody else that just want to have a conversation may not so that's spam because uh, they it's clear for the people selling the information that some of the user receiving it don't want it but they do it anyway for many reason reason could be disruption so it could be the DDoS attack reasons could be uh, commercial so even if most people will hate it a subset uh, will have a conversion rate yeah. or reason could be publicity via outrage or trolling yeah. or having fun but that's spam and it has nothing unique to Bitcoin uh, it's a general problem in software because in software you can uh, you can have a low cost of sending information and you can have uh, a, a rich a potential infinite number of users with uh, with a sublinear cost in Bitcoin that's even more true some some people say that's not true in Bitcoin because you pay fees but in Bitcoin you pay one single instance of block space once to one miner and then you will have all future Bitcoin nodes uh, downloading that data yeah. forever maybe not holding because maybe they, they could, they could prove it, later, yeah. but they have to download it forever. So Bitcoin is, in a way, was deriving from anti-spam like Ashcash, but it's a perfect spam system right now because you can basically paying one single inch of, uh, uh, like it's more effective than the call center. Yeah. The call center you spend what, like 100k and you reach uh, 1 million people by phone. In Bitcoin you pay $30 and you reach millions of Bitcoiners forever. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on I that I believe some of it is spam, although I'm maybe not convinced that filtering will work. I think it kind of will end up like as kind of like a stalemate. The reason I believe that is even if Bitcoin Core were to update some of the filters, Bitcoin Core has releases normally twice a year. And so then spammers can just change their protocol. They can change the meta protocol. They can be like, oh, look, we see Bitcoin Core is going to update their filter. We'll just change our approach. And, you know, like it or not, there's kind of also an element of here... It takes two to tango, right? The miners, like the spammers, want to spam, and some of the miners they want that revenue from the spammers, whether we like it or not. So I'm curious what you see there as the realistic chances of being able to filter out the spam. Even if I'm sympathetic, I think we might not be able to. That's a totally reasonable uh, objection that I respect and probably even share. If somebody tells me that the filters may be a long-term solution to spam, that absolutely that you do one filter and then everything is solved, that's not true. Trivially not true. Everybody can just route around. Somebody could say that you, we could keep doing updates of filters, like uh, f filtering spam, it is a cat and mouse game everywhere, in email, everywhere, in Twitter. Yeah. So you keep the, the, the cat work and they keep the mouse work. You, the, the advantage is a little bit asymmetrical because uh, it's easier to fix the filters than to find the ways around it. Maybe, but that's, that's debatable. But anyway, we could just say, we keep going. The problem is that this is not a one-off silver bullet. That's a continuous struggle. Uh, 
what I find hypocritical is to say that this kind of struggle is uh, inconceivable uh, or that there are some people holding at the same time that this, that this idea will be useless and also hurtful. Uh, that's that's basically impossible. Gotcha. Yeah. If it's if it's irrelevant, it's irrelevant. Yeah. People will just go off ban. If going off ban will will kill Bitcoin, we have a total different problem because people are already paying for yeah. block space off ban. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, this, this the, the, uh, to say that uh, spam is not a problem, but filtering spam is, I think, is crazily hypocritical. But to say that this is not there is no good solution for spam, I think it's a fair assessment. And people that expect a magic solution from filters, I think, is very very naive. There is a subset of people like for example if you talk with Luke, Luke say okay spill, uh, s filters will help the problem to be clear like if miners are clearly going around the mempool in order to include the obvious spam then the miners are so obviously malicious that we can coordinate better a response to that but I'm so scared to any kind of response to that which is basically only a nuclear option that I don't know we want clarity in that case right. but that's at least is a consistent so the strategy is not naive in that case the strategy is we filter, so you go off band in order to uh, to include spam, which is obvious spam. So we know you're being malicious, and so we can coordinate some response. I don't necessarily uh, uh, like promote this kind of situation because that kind of war, total war with miners, is not a war which is easy to win. Because right. any consensus change, especially on that, will require so much coordination that will basically be a strong centralization point. Yeah, and maybe the argument would be that it's kind of like an asymmetric thing, like it would require so much effort to try to put in this spam filtering effort that the spammers could just route around. I think, let's put that to the side. One other area that's kind of related is there's been this narrative of, oh, the spam, in their words, ordinals and inscriptions, is bringing the Bitcoin builders back. You know, it's bringing builders back to Bitcoin in their view, or that there's this kind of uh, new L2s that kind of actually have their own token. I'm curious your view on that. Are the builders coming back to Bitcoin because of the spam, or is that, is that a disingenuous narrative? Totally disingenuous. What is coming back is a set of gambler and uh, social media um, manipulators uh, and pump and dump group creators that use the typical uh, late stage Silicon Valley builder narrative, which is basically uh, a random buzzword, uh, total hype. And there is this typical attitude, which is uh, you can build stuff that works, that requires some initial work of design, which is very exciting because you create something new, and then a lot of tools and tooling and documentation and testing which is boring and then on top of that incre incremental uh, improvement in documentation and in tooling this is super boring nobody wants to do that there are th those are builders but it's not exciting for anybody nobody would want to uh, gamble on that you cannot do a gamification of that I mean you can but it's very hard so Bitcoin is already at the stage in which we have Bitcoin we mostly have to fix documented like before we change the protocol so many low hanging fruits from the point of view of the non-consensus relevant tooling is uh, like for example in lightning we could change covenants to make lightning better it will work it will probably work but before lightning st you still we still have to go to bolt 12 from bolt 11 because bolt 11 sucks we still have to do a reasonable lightning network wallet that will for example give you a different risk management based on the amount that you have uh, a, a universal link where I can pay you and my wallet will decide if I want to pay of chain or create another challenge on the fly. All this tooling that nobody's building because everybody wants to be down in the stack because it feels more exciting. 
but we are not really bringing builders. Where at least if that was the case, if you have too many builders trying to go low level, that's bad because now we need to fix actually. So there is this, this delusion that uh, so fixing lightning with tooling is hard. So just let's do something completely new that magically will not need a lot of tooling. That, that's bullshit. Yeah. You will have go. You will go back to square zero with drive chain, uh, everything arcs. You will just go back to square zero, and you will have to rebuild all the stack and all the boring stuff anyway. But in the case of ordinals, you are just attracting uh, speculators. Like you are attracting the typical Silicon Valley bullshit VC narrative of uh, some kind of buzzword with a lot of retail investor trying to. Uh, People have in mind the dot-com bubble. Yeah. They know that retail were making money out of some technological explosion. Yeah. And now they try to recreate that. So it's just narrative. Like there are the builders, there is the technology, but it's yeah. bullshit. And, it's in, and you can see that because when somebody comes saying that ordinals are a novelty and innovation, you point out the 2012 Bitcoin talk post yeah. where there was exactly the same. And they say, oh, I don't care. Yeah. Because it's not about innovation. It's, about, it's all about the narrative, the hype. Yeah, right. I mean, in fairness, I believe Casey's BIP does point to that reference, that 2012. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that at least Casey Rodama's work with ordinals and his version of inscriptions is less pollutive or less damaging than BRC20 and stamps. Probably fair to say that. Um, but I guess let's focus on positive aspects. Like, what areas of real building are you excited about, you know, nowadays in Bitcoin and Lightning and the, the ecosystem? So Lightning as the most exciting part, again, exciting doesn't mean important. You can have important stuff that are not exciting at all. Yeah. But exciting for me right now is async payment, async, res, uh, asynchronous. Asynchronous, yeah. asynchronous, uh, uh, reception of payment. Like uh, Breeze is uh, working about that a lot and other, and other wallets. Uh, see, uh, again, Breeze, Roy, is working with other people, including John Carvalho and some Blockstream people on a standard LSP. for LSP. LSP spec is very important because uh, it's basically accepting that uh, the Lightning Network is a two-tier system. That is not new in Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin base layer is a two-tier system. Uh, even is a like three or four-tier system. You have miners creating blocks but not validating them because they're just hashing. Uh, the, the pool is the only one validating. You have full nodes not creating blocks. You have wallets not even running full nodes. So you already have a tier system and we accepted that. Yeah. So we separated the mining software from the node software from the wallet software, for example, or hardware. In Lightning, we were starting again from a naive version where everybody will be a complete lightning node doing routing, yeah. trampling. And now, now basically you see two tiers, which is basically the the pure user and the LSP. Yeah. This tier is, is something inevitable. This this tier definition is not complete centralization in the sense that if you kill one LSP, you can easily get your money back. So it's not like centralization, like a total risk that you lose everything. You just have to move to another LSP. But the the way, the best way to make a crisis of the central points uh, better and less impactful is to make it interoperable uh, between any LSP. Yeah. So the LSP spec is very, very important. Then there is RGB that I, I, I know that overlaps a lot with the shitcoin world, so I'm very cautious about that. But I, I see that as exciting about uh, the, the, the possible a possible way to scale Bitcoin in the future, a far future, because we need a two-way two peg, which we don't have a clue how to do. In that, in that field, zero knowledge proofs, even if it is used by shitcoin narratives and builder narratives, it's objectively interesting. The fact that you can have yeah. BitVM or the, the, uh, the, 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 the same team created this proof to basically compactively prove the, the, 
Yeah, the ZK Sync stuff with all, the, now they're doing all the proof of work chain with all the adders. That's very fascinating. Yeah. Seems like magic. Not sure when it will become useful for syncing a node because yeah. there's still a lot to, a lot to yeah. go. Oh, sorry. I think it's called zero sync. I said it wrong. I think it's yeah. zero sync. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also, with you know fees being very variable, there is kind of talk of people pushing off to use, let's say, liquid or use things like Fediment. Do you see that as a concern? Just because it's difficult to con to convey that trade-off to a new coiner, right? Like you teach them with this wallet. How do you teach them? Oh, actually, it's it's custodied by this twelve or fifteen federation or this guardians. Do you do you see concern there, or do you see that as just look? That's just the way it has to go. So the, there is like a rational answer and a motivational answer. Rational answer is it will always be a, a spectrum. Like you have full custody, like what Alfini were, were, was thinking. Yeah, Alfini said banks, yeah. Bitcoin banks, which doesn't mean ETF. Bitcoin banks in Alfini's mind were darknet entities, like pseudonymous entities yeah. without KYC or anything. Yeah. And they, they can exist because darknet, uh, darknet markets, they do exist. Yeah. They are custodial or like fiduciary mixers. They do exist. Sometimes they rock pull or they get closed, but they do exist and they do work for a while yeah. with reputation and with risk, of course. So there is Bitcoin banks on one side. There is on-chain Bitcoin where your security is very strong and goes up exponentially with time. In between, you have a lot of Compromises. Like light, the Lightning Channel, typical Dria Poon Lightning Channel, is a little bit less than a full on chain because it's still trustless. Yeah. But if the on chain wallet uh, has a security that goes up, uh, goes up exponentially with time, in your uh, Dria Poon channel, will, security will go down with time because you have, you have to stay there with the watchtower to, to key, chain, yeah. to watch the, ch the chain. You can have the adversary could collude with the miners for just a, a, a while to stop you from sending yeah. the punishment. So it's a little bit less secure. Then you go. You go down and you have something like ARC. The ARC system is a system in which you can get your money back, but if you don't connect every two weeks, for example, the ARC provider can take it all, and eventually it will. Then you go down and you have something like state chain. In state chain, your coordinator can collude with the previous owner, but it's very complicated. The attack model is very complicated. Then you go to something like Fedimint. In Fedimint, you have, sure, you have basically Chomian Mint, so it's hard to target you. You cannot steal my money because you don't know how much money I have you can steal everything but the federation will make it harder to steal everything and then you can go down to something like uh, a single show me a mint like cashew for example yeah. which uh, you have cashew then you have basically we can go we can, the full Bitcoin bank like Alfini if you put a, a show me a mint on top of that is better that's cashew if you put the federation that's better that's basically yeah. Fedimint. if you put a side chain kind of uh, full reserve proof that's liquid basically yeah. uh, and if you go even beyond that's a state chain and then you can go to an arc and then to a channel so you have this spectrum the motivational answer is we should always push in this direction rhetorically because people will already gravitate to the simple direction anyway instinctively so we, we should not teach oh for your use case just use custody it's better it's true but it's better if we don't uh, but this is not like dishonesty imagine in a, like in, a, in Lord of the Rings there is Aragorn with the, with the army they are basically is saying yeah. uh, there, there, there will come a day where we will lose, but it's not this day. This is not necessarily realistic. They were going to lose probably, but you don't say what is realistic. You say yeah. what's, what people need to hear. <laughs> so we should never use custodials, but actually we will. <laughs> and of course, I mean, it's, it's going to be driven by cost as well. Anyway, I've kept you for long enough. So uh, just as we finish, where can people find you and find uh, what you're working on? 
Find me directly on Twitter, X is probably my name, Giacomo Zucco, is the, the, the typical way to go. Uh, right now I have many projects, but I'm trying to focus on one specific in the next month, which is Plan B Network, planb.network. You can already find a huge amount of educational material in many, many languages, uh, mostly provided by the uh, Bitcoin University of uh, the Coover Bitcoin. And now we are integrating a lot of other stuff, a Kubo Plus program, the Lugano Summer School program, and uh, Summer of Bitcoin, a lot of other cool stuff in education. So in the next months, you will be able to find also paid courses. We will intermediate professionals of teaching like uh, like Lisa and uh, and uh, Jimmy and, and other people in the ecosystem. Fantastic. Thanks, Giacomo. So finally, I hope you enjoyed the, that range of discussions and different viewpoints with people from the Bitcoin ecosystem based on interviews while at Bitcoin Oasis 2024. Let me know if you enjoyed this kind of uh, episode and whether you'd like to see more like this in the future. Of course, check out my website at stefanlevera.com and all the links for the people who are interviewed. You can see those in the show notes or in the description. That's it for me. Thanks, and I'll see you in the Citadels.